all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle one, the package is being delivered. Fancy Bear, APT-10, Lazarus Group, Charming Kitten. These are all the names given to government hacker groups. And if you pay any attention to cybersecurity news, you heard about Russian hackers, Chinese hackers, and groups that are usually called APTs, government-sponsored hackers. Today, the Department of Justice is announcing a criminal indictment of two hackers associated with the Chinese government. The FBI suspects the hack was perpetrated by Russian intelligence in an effort to elect Donald Trump. We don't know for sure that they're colluding. All we know is that the hacking groups responsible go by the names Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. A Kremlin-backed cyber team known as Fancy Bear has also gone after targets in Europe and Russia. This week, we're talking with Eva Galperin, the director of cybersecurity with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Eva has been researching APTs for years, investigating these state hackers from all over every corner of the globe. Because countries everywhere are growing their cyber armies, and there's no signs of that slowing down. I'm national security reporter Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So, pretty crazy few weeks in APT land. Just like every other week, yep. <laughs> so, just to start this off, can you just tell me, what does APT stand for? APT stands for Advanced Persisted Threat and is usually understood to mean uh, state actors, though honestly, uh, plenty of other groups could probably be described as advanced persistent threats. Uh, APTs are, are usually trotted out sort of in, um, in contrast to criminal groups that are doing sort of less targeted work. Okay, so but why do people call it advanced persistent threat for what amounts to nation states? Uh, so the, the thing that is generally thought to distinguish nation state actors from uh, non-nation state actors, and uh, I, I will not pause to go on a rant uh, stolen directly from Maratam, Uh, about why we shouldn't call them nation-state actors. They're just state actors. Nation-state has a very specific meaning in political science. Um, But this is what we do. So I've gone ahead and taken it up. It just sounds fancier. So the the ways in which state actors are thought to be different from criminals is that their goals are different. So they have a uh, group of people who full-time job is uh, breaking into the uh, the target's devices or accounts. They you know, start work in the morning. They finish work in the evening. They have uh, access to more advanced tooling because they have more money. Uh, and they are willing to be patient, which is one of the reasons why it is called a persistent threat. Uh, so it's a combination of the fancier tooling and patience Uh, along with a tendency to be very narrowly targeted and therefore uh, harder to find. And basically that's exactly it, right? They're they're government hackers that their exact job is to show up to the office every single day, go after a target until you obtain what you need, and then go home. Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of an an interesting thing? Because, you know, people's perceptions of what cyber armies are, these sort of government hackers, it, it seems a lot more kind of fancy and clandestine. But, you know, you, you take the account of, of China, for example. They've tracked some of these Chinese government hackers, and they see that they are extremely active between 9 to 5 
Beijing time, and they break at lunch. Yeah, it, this is just somebody's job. And uh, on one hand, that makes it uh, harder to, um, to protect yourself against them because they'll keep coming at you until, uh, until they gain an advantage. Um, and on the other hand, they're not that ideologically invested in, uh, in owning you. Uh, they're just doing it for work. But one of the ways in which state actors are considered to be very different from criminals is that they're harder to protect against. And the reason that they're harder to protect against is not only because of their fancier tooling and potentially you know, willingness to spend uh, more money on, um, on compromising a specific target, but also because you can't just use the security posture of uh, outrunning the other guy who's trying to outrun the bear. Uh, if you specifically are being targeted, then you don't, uh, you can't just make yourself a harder target than other activists or other journalists and think that that's going to be enough. Uh, and that's one of the ways in which uh, APTs are different from trying to protect yourself from criminals. And you're also dealing with an adversary that you likely will never apprehend and has the full protection of a state like, say, China or Russia. Yeah. I mean, what are you, what are you going to do? Uh, the DOJ issues indictments uh, these days against specific Russian hackers or specific Chinese hackers, and it's uh, unlikely to come to anything. And uh, people involved in similar hacking in the United States against targets outside of the United States think that this uh, sets a terrible precedent because they all imagine uh, indictments coming down, uh, naming them. Uh, in in other countries. And it's not unreasonable to think that this is not a precedent that the U.S. should be setting. And to be really simple about it, what's the like top 10 nation state hacking groups? What are, who, who, who's the most active? Who's the most advanced? Who does the things that, you know, you could say is sort of advancing this whole geopolitical space online? Well, it really depends on what you mean by advanced. Uh, it turns out that you don't have to be super advanced in order uh, in order to compromise most targets. Uh, generally, uh, Five Eyes countries plus China, uh, Israel, uh, and I would say Russia uh, are are thought to be the most sophisticated actors in the field, and we're definitely thought to be sort of at the at the leading edge of nation-state espionage. Uh, there's the famous James Mickens quote in which he goes on and on about how owned you are if you go up against the Mossad. Uh, so Israel is considered to be tremendously advanced and highly determined in this area. Uh, same if you're uh, if your attacker is the NSA, you have some you have some very serious concerns. You mostly need to concern yourself with mitigation rather than uh, being able to keep uh, everything completely under wraps. So um, they're generally thought to be the most advanced actors, but it turns out that you don't have to be very advanced in order to be successful. Um, Iran, for example, is tremendously prolific when it comes to uh, to phishing campaigns and campaigns of malware. Uh, the same goes for uh, Ethiopia, which we don't normally think of as a as a major cyber actor. As far as we can tell, Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government, the previous Ethiopian government, uh, bought just about every um, commercial hacking tool that you can possibly get your hands on, and had attempted to uh, use them against the opposition. Uh, Ever since the change in government in uh, in Ethiopia, we expect to see that sort of calm down a bit. 
Uh, we've also seen you know, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain all at it. Uh, same goes for, uh, for Mexico. Uh, these, these are all sort of lesser, uh, less sophisticated actors, but they have managed to be uh, really successful. And that's the interesting thing, too, is that, you know, you look at the Middle East right now and some of those countries, such as Saudi Arabia, are the countries that are actually some of the leading arms buyers in the entire world, so actual kinetic weaponry. But you're also seeing sort of this similar boom of malware and espionage tools in the exact same area. Not everybody who is uh, who is running around stockpiling uh, military weapons is necessarily uh, upping their cyber espionage game. Uh, but for political reasons, they're you know in the in the Gulf, you've definitely seen an uptick in both of these things. And why do you think that is? Well, quite simply, because uh, espionage uh, goes goes hand in hand with kinetic warfare, and so it's considered to be you know part of uh, part of the package. Uh, so when you are engaged in kinetic warfare, you also want to know what the uh, what your opponents are doing because it allows you to be more effective at kinetic warfare. Uh, if you are in a, in a position as a state where you're trying to say, avoid kinetic warfare, espionage is also considered to be useful. There's sort of a uh, way of approaching the art of espionage, uh, which is an argument that espionage prevents warfare. It, you know, by allowing um, states to have sort of a, um, a release valve uh, so that they have options uh, instead of just blowing each other up. I'm not entirely certain that I buy this argument, but uh, I do think that states buy into it. And so they invest very heavily in espionage uh, when they're gearing up for kinetic warfare or if they're in the middle of it. Uh, I, I believe the U.S. Uh, considers the cybers to be another theater of war now. Well, I mean, that kind of goes to the whole the whole sort of uproar and hysteria around Russian hackers and how they have this sort of almost godlike power to take down the United States government whenever it pleases. <laughs> and now we pause for me to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, using the mighty powers of fishing John Podesta, um, the Russian government has managed to hijack and control all of our elections. Uh, that is a tremendous exaggeration. Um, on one hand, uh, Russian and Ukrainian and other post-Soviet actors are extremely active in the space, uh, both in terms of uh, state espionage, uh, spying on each other and spying on uh, on the United States, like the the. Russian-Ukrainian spying is uh, is dizzying if you try to keep track of it. Um, but also, uh, they have a long history of criminal action. There are a lot of, of cyber criminals operating inside of the post-Soviet states. And in Russia, at least for a very long time, it was understood um, that if you wanted to engage in, uh, in online crime, that as long as you weren't ripping off Russians, the rest of the world was fair game and you would have a safe place to sit. Um, as far as I know, that is still the case. Uh, nobody sends me a memo on like what Russian cybercrime is, uh, is up to, but uh, I, I, try to, I try to keep an eye on it. Um, and with, because of that understanding, there is a, um, there is a large number of, uh, of criminals with considerable expertise that these uh, that these states are able to draw on. 
Yeah, it's sort of that pooling of talent that happens in Russia where there's legitimate evidence out there suggesting that you know, FSB operates some of these clandestine sites where they're able to get some of these black hat hackers to do some of their bidding. Mm-hmm. And it's a great way to, you know, make sure the United States doesn't ever know it's you or kind of knows it's you or, you know, we didn't really sanction that one. So sorry. It allows uh, it allows the Russian government to have a sort of plausible deniability. Um, but there's also just a whole question of how plausibly deniable do they want to get? Uh, these days, you, you can actually have fairly strong attribution, and uh, it's not like anything's going to happen to Russian actors who remain inside of Russia or who don't travel to the United States. There, there are no real consequences. So would you say the difference between let's say, 2010 to present is just, you know, the sheer proliferation of these agencies now and these different governments that have this new capability online? Or do you think that this is something that's always been around and it's just sort of evolving just like every other country has had the internet and has been doing this ever since? I do think that the extent to which state espionage has become less expensive and especially digital espionage has become uh, inexpensive to the point where you can contact a company like NSO Group in Israel or a hacking team in uh, in Milan and for a few hundred thousand dollars get, uh, get access to uh, Target's mobile phones. Uh, you're definitely seeing this spread among uh, more and more countries that are not thought to be on the cutting edge of espionage. But I think that the big thing that has really changed since approximately 2010 uh, is is not that the capabilities have uh, have improved. It's that your average person who is likely to be a target is carrying a tracking device in their pocket. The, the sort of proliferation of the mobile phone, I think, has really changed everything um, because it's such an incredibly tempting target, uh, because it, it carries such a wealth of information about uh, people that you might want to know. And uh, as a result, there's just a lot more to spy on. Well, that's an extremely depressing way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm here to bring the Christmas cheer. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't disagree. The other thing, too, is just the proliferation of, you know, the Internet of Things as well. I mean, I, I've spoken to, to intelligence sources in the past that said, you know, in 2007 or 2008, our target platform was three devices. And, you know, you go to you, you go after somebody, post that in, in, in the present time, and you have 18 devices where you can get into their Wi-Fi from. Absolutely. And uh, even more disturbingly, people are installing things like Alexas in their homes. So now you have this sort of always-on listening device <laughs> that you're using to you know, turn your music and your lights on and off. Uh, I, I read a story this morning about a guy who had uh, requested all of his information from Amazon under the GDPR, and Amazon accidentally sent him the, the voice recordings from some other user who had an Alexa. This guy did not have an Alexa. Uh, so he absolutely knew that the Alexa recordings were not him, and you could find out a lot of extremely personal stuff about this guy uh, based on that. So that's really disturbing. Uh, we're we're definitely making it easier and easier for uh, for states to spy on us by just making more and more information available and filling our um, our homes and our lives with devices. I heard a story about Vladimir Putin once before, where apparently he doesn't use a cell phone, he doesn't touch a computer, and he only issues 
top secret commands six floors below the Kremlin. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But like a mafia, uh, like a mafia capo. It does, but it does seem like maybe the only way to at least mostly evade your information or having a hot mic situation from happening. That's certainly one way. Uh, and again, you know, Putin is a very different target than, say, you or me. Uh, the number of people who would like to know what Putin is doing at any given time is much greater than the number of people who are interested in my life or yours. And the will, the amount of trouble that they're willing to go through in order to achieve that is much greater. So it's really all about threat modeling. Yeah, I wonder what he is doing right now, actually, now that you, you, you ask. Posing shirtless for a calendar. <laughs> now, what about the way that, let's say, journalists, activists regular citizens have been sort of an expanded target for most states. Because, you know, look at someone like uh, Khashoggi. There's Mm. reason to believe that he was being spied on as well, and that's how he's being tracked. I mean, you look at the the journalists that were killed in the CAR earlier this year, possibly being tracked as well. How has that space evolved in the last few years? Well, it used to be that if a state wanted to physically track somebody's location, they had to send someone to go follow them. Uh, But as I said before, now we all conveniently carry tracking devices in our pockets. Uh, And so if you can own somebody's phone, you can get their location. And if you can get their location, you can learn an awful lot about them. You can also learn who they're communicating with. Uh, Again, this is uh, why the safety and security of these devices is so incredibly important, because they provide this incredible wealth of information that is so useful to states. And having said that, the kind of information that is useful to states is also the kind of information that is um, that is used by uh, that is used in domestic abuse. Uh, for example, abusive partners have a, a very similar relationship to their targets as, uh, say, an authoritarian government does to a dissident. Uh, they want to keep track of them. They want to know what they're doing. They want to know where they're going. They want to know who they're talking to. I uh, and. Uh, as it turns out, you can deploy more or less the same technology in order to do this. And I think, you know, in the midst of, I mean, this week, Facebook, there was evidence to suggest that they were giving up tons of information to some of the other bigger social media companies mm-hmm. about their users. Now, you know, and, and I don't even have to bring up the Snowden leaks, but is it really, can you protect yourself from this sort of prying eye, this, this big brother? Because in the end, there always seems to be some sort of ace in the hole for the bad guys. Well, uh, one of the things that I did at uh, at EFF a few years ago was I, I led the uh, sort of rewrite of EFF's uh, privacy and security advice uh, to ordinary people and vulnerable uh, people in vulnerable populations. And it's called uh, surveillance self-defense. And one of the ways in which I try to get people to think about surveillance self-defense is threat modeling, to really sit down and think about what you want to protect and who you want to protect it from. And the reason why this is incredibly important is that trying to protect everything all the time from everybody will just drive you crazy. Uh, It is impossible and you should not bother. But that doesn't mean that you should give up. It means that you should really just narrow it down to what am I trying to protect who am I trying to protect it against? Uh, and you know, make all of your mitigations accordingly. Uh, for example, if I am particularly concerned about a stalker or 
a government. Uh, I'm going to do very different things than if I'm concerned about ads and adware, or if I'm concerned about my parents spying on me or uh, my school or my church. Like, these are all different things. These are different people with different levels of capability and the things that I need to do in order to avoid them are different. I remember a source once told me in the intelligence community, when it comes to APTs, if they're targeting you, the only thing you can do is slow them down because they're going to get it one way or the other. It depends. Uh, Again, it depends on the APT. It depends on how determined they are to get you uh, and how important you are. And often, uh, buying time is enough. Uh, especially if you are uh, if you are a journalist or if you are an activist and you just need enough time to publish your story or to uh, get your action out, then being able to delay the people who are who are spying on you or trying to understand what you are doing is sufficient. You don't always have to keep your opponent in the dark. You just have to keep them several steps behind you. So here's one of my my last questions I wanted to because we haven't really spoken about it, but it's the elephant in the room. China. They've been in the news lately, especially Mm. when it comes to their APTs. What is China's main sort of geopolitical goal when it comes to using these types of groups? Well, uh, one of the interesting things about China is that they have a variety of APTs uh, in in much the same way that uh, that Russia's APT landscape is a many varied and splendid thing. So many bears. Uh, So in the same way as there there are many bears, there are many pandas. Uh, so in China, we have a bunch of different uh, government organizations that engage in in state hacking. There are also sort of uh, para-government organizations, organizations that seem to um, that seem to act with the blessing of the government. And there are also criminal organizations, and there's kind of some overlap between all of these things. And in that sense, it's kind of similar to uh, similar to Russia. So you see uh, state espionage being used uh, to uncover uh, sources for stories, especially stories uh, surrounding uh, political issues. You see uh, state spying being used uh, for state control. Um, for example, control of the Uyghur population in northwestern uh, northwestern China, in Xinjiang, uh, and you also see criminal activity and uh, sort of corporate espionage, which is sometimes kind of personal and other times is done kind of in conjunction with uh, with state goals. Uh, for example, stealing intellectual property so that a uh, Chinese company can manufacture an American company or a European company's uh, products uh, more cheaply and therefore get that revenue. So this is more of a personal question for you and the FF, but um, do you ever think an APT targeted you or the FF? An APT has targeted me more than once. Well, how did you react to that? I wrote it up. I wrote it up and published it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> not, I, uh, not, not backing down. I'm an extremely lazy security researcher. Nothing would make me happier than if governments would send me their malware directly. It saves me the trouble of having to find it myself. So all the APTs out there targeting Ava, let's get Eva sloppy. at EFF.org. <laughs> Spell it right. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Last of all, I can talk a little bit about Dark Caracol. Um, so earlier this year, um, EFF worked with security researchers at Lookout, and we uncovered a campaign of cyber espionage uh, that covered both uh, mobile and desktop devices that seemed to be based out of Lebanon and was targeting um, people who would be of interest to the Lebanese government. We managed to track down the physical location from which uh, the administrator was logging into the portal. And it was a specific floor of a specific building uh, run by the general directorate of of uh, Lebanon and Beirut. So we can't say exactly who was um, who was behind this campaign, but we can tell you it's coming from inside the room. Um, and one of the interesting things that we discovered was that this was the same uh, infrastructure that had been used for uh, a spying campaign that EFF had reported on a couple of years ago, uh, which we called Operation Manu, uh, the Manu BNB cat, which was a wild cat, which is um, native to the steppes of Kazakhstan. And this particular campaign was targeting people of interest to Kazakhstan. So we spent some time looking at why uh, these two campaigns might be using similar infrastructure. For example, why is Kazakhstan spying on Lebanon? Why is Lebanon spying on Kazakhstan? Uh, we think it is more likely that this is a shared infrastructure which is being rented out uh, both to states and criminals. And we've uh, kept track of this for the for the last couple of years. And we think that this is probably the sort of the new frontier in cheaper and more uh, turnkey solutions to government spying for uh, lower end states. So basically what you're saying is, I mean, for one, this is an example of sort of an emergent country using these types of tools for their own geopolitical aims. But also Lebanon and Kazakhstan were outsourcing it to privateers. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is what we think. Any idea who that would be? No, I can't tell you who's running that infrastructure. That is a story for another report. Um, but what I can tell you is that we think this is kind of the, the new frontier of, of cheaper and cheaper spying. And it solves a problem that you can see in the hacking team emails from a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the problems that the lower end states had was that they had difficulty using hacking teams products. They didn't have uh, enough of a staff that spoke English or that had uh, the, um, the training to understand how to use the tools. And this made it more difficult for them to do their spying. So you can look through the you know, kind of um, trouble tickets that were, being, uh, that were being sent out. And you can see, uh, I think it was, it wasn't Kazakhstan. It was like Azerbaijan or Turkmenistan. I think it was Turkmenistan. Uh, where they just didn't have anybody who could communicate with uh, with hacking team's team in order to fix the problem with their implant. Uh, and one of the ways around this is just to create a portal. So you have a um, you have a the third party 
uh, service that uh, that makes a portal that you can then log into that makes the spying even easier and requires even less training and even less of a language barrier. So we think that that is what what is happening with sort of the um, the lowest end of uh, state spying these days. Yeah, I believe it was South Sudan, if I remember correctly, that South Sudan had bought those tools from hacking team and then they couldn't even use it. And I think even the hacking team employees were making fun of them for it. That sounds about right. I think, I think that's what it was. <laughs> Seems legit. So having said all this, going forward, what worries you in terms of APTs in the future? The thing that really worries me about APTs in the future, just just from this week, is uh, Amnesty International's report about a, uh, a campaign of phishing that they have seen uh, with targets in North Africa and the Middle East. And one of the most interesting aspects of this phishing campaign was that they found a way to circumvent uh, two-factor authentication, at least uh, the um, for application the application methods and SMS. Uh, 2FA. This would not work with, um, with like a YubiKey or uh, like any other uh, similar key. And I find that extremely disturbing because most uh, most 2FA solutions are uh, are vulnerable to this attack. And while we've seen similar attacks from you know from Five Eyes from you know, extremely what we consider to be high end actors, uh, it is very disturbing to see this same sort of attack filter down to lower end actors because uh, it's it's only going to get cheaper and easier and more automated. And this means that I need to start recommending YubiKeys uh, to more and more people and I need to start pushing more platforms uh, to support uh, better forms of two-factor authentication. It used to be that just getting platforms to support any kind of 2FA was considered to be a major win. Um, but now, like you, you need to support keys. If you don't, if you don't support keys, are you, you're not really keeping vulnerable populations safe. So basically, what you're saying is, I mean, the attacks are getting wildly more sophisticated and easier and cheaper to do, and more and more countries are engaging in this kind of, this kind of tool. The sharks are getting smarter. Yes. Great way to end it. Thanks a lot. It's good to talk to you. All right. No problem. This week's episode was produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Picirai and recorded by Mitch Rackin. It was edited by Dean White. Thanks for listening to Cyber. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, please tell your friends about us and consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.